Well, go ahead, if you would, and turn in your Bibles um, this morning to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, your Bible or your um, tablet or phone or whatever it is that you, um, that you use. Uh, today, we uh, continue in our series uh, of Beholding uh, God. Uh, it's been a, a great joy uh, to, to spend time in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, and I've, I've really enjoyed um, being able to come and, and speak to you from, from God's Word um, on these Sunday mornings and look forward to, to the days ahead. Uh, in just a few moments, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31 of this chapter in, in Isaiah. Uh, but before we, we do, just some, some opening comments. The, the title uh, for today's message, if you notice in your worship folder, is very simply, Strength for Weary Souls. In all honesty and full disclosure, I pirated part of those words uh, from a song that we sing often in our church uh, that's titled, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Some of you are probably familiar with that song, um, but you may not be quite as familiar uh, with the actual story behind the song. Uh, it was written uh, by a, a lady whose name was Anne Steele. Steele was born in England, uh, I think it was around, nine, um, nine, around 1717. She had an interesting life uh, at a very young age, very young, the age of three, uh, her mother died. Can you imagine that? At the age of 14, she contracted malaria, which obviously took a toll on her health. Uh, she struggled for most of her life with very painful stomach ailments and severe teeth pain. Suffice it to say that Anne's health was not very good. At the age of 19, she was thrown from a horse and while it's often been said that she became an invalid as a result of that, I've found out that's really not the case, um, she did nevertheless sustain a very serious hip injury that troubled her for the rest of her life. And then at the age of 21, Anne became engaged to a young man. And the day before the wedding, the young man went to bathe in a river or a pond, not sure which it was, but when he did so, he never came out of the pond, he drowned. Heartbroken over the loss, Anne never married, but remained single for the rest of her life. The day after her fiance's death, she sat down and she penned the words to what eventually became the song that we today sing and know as Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And I want to give you just a couple of lines from this song. And I want you to listen to it and hear the weariness in this woman's soul. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone can heal. 
Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Yet, gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust. And still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. I find two things quite striking about the lyrics to that hymn. Maybe you heard them all also. First, there's her honesty. She is incredibly honest about the pain and the disappointment and just the sheer hardness of her life. And the second thing that I find striking is the way in which she turns to God for strength and for hope to go on. Several have mentioned in biographies about her that she became one of the most happy, most joyful persons that they had ever known in spite of the hardness of life. Let's just be honest. If I'd have gone through that, I'm just not convinced I'd have been that joyful. Just being honest. And yet, I, I wonder if maybe we struggle, we all struggle to live like that. Something comes into our lives. It could be physical. It could be the death of somebody we love. It could be the loss of some relationship. And we struggle to maintain joy. Our, our souls just become weary. And that is the great temptation. When and things like when hard things come into our life, is to become weary and, and in our weariness turn inward. And quite frankly, to say things usually to ourselves like, gee, God, really? I mean, really, God? This, now, in my life? God, don't, don't you see what I'm going through? Are you really aware Do you really understand? (laughs) Do you even care? When facing hard things, we've all asked questions like that. At At least I have. Well, you'll be encouraged to know that if you have, you're not the first. The people in the text that we're going to be looking at today were having such thoughts. And God, in his kindness, comes to them through the prophet Isaiah with some of the most encouraging words, I believe, in all of Scripture. I was supposed to preach this last week, and I love snow. When the snow came, I thought, shoot, I'm not going to be able to talk about this. And so I've been really anxious to talk about this. Let Let me remind you what's going on here. You'll recall that here in chapter 40, Isaiah is looking out into the future. 
The people of God have been exiled in Babylon. Isaiah writes a word of comfort to them, essentially saying, take a deep breath, (laughs) relax a little. One day, God's going to bring you out of exile and return you to Jerusalem. And guess what? That's exactly what God did. In 539 BC, King Cyrus of Persia released God's people. And a little over 49,000 of them began the long trek back to Jerusalem. Now, when I say long, it was long. 850 miles long. It would be sort of like leaving Clemson and going to upstate New York. On foot, mind you. Try to picture them for a moment. There were young people, young couples with families and with children and babies. There were elderly folks, obviously not with babies, but perhaps using a cane to find their way forward. They put all that they owned, which was very little, in wagons, and they started back to Jerusalem. It took four months for them to get there. And when they did, what did they arrive to? There were no towns, there were no houses, there were no beds to sleep in. They had to start all over from scratch. (laughs) You want to talk about hard? These people knew hard. And perhaps it's why so many Jewish families chose to remain in Babylon after the exile. They just dreaded and couldn't face the idea of additional trials and difficulties that they knew lay ahead. But not this crowd. No, away they go. And I'd like to say that they went with joyful expectation, sort of like Ann Steele. But as we're about to see, that wasn't the case. Look with me, if you would, please, at Isaiah 40. As I read verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of God for the people of God. Pray with me, please. Father, as we come now to your word, help us to read, mark, learn, grow, change, and fall deeper and more hopelessly in love with you 
as a result of what we see in this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. Here in Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31, we, we have this beautiful picture of a tender, of the tender and the gracious way that God cares to weary, broken people. And there are three things I'd like to point out from the text this morning. Pretty easy outline. If outlines are your things, it goes like this. In verse 27, we're going to look at God's concern. All these begin with a C. Remember, I was a Baptist in previous life. God's concern. In verses 28 and 29, God's care. And in verses 30 through 31, I'm calling that God's call. God's call. God's concern, God's care, and God's call. Let's start with God's concern. When you look at this passage that we have before us here this morning, uh, one of the things that you can't help but notice from the outset is that these people to whom God is writing, they're just not happy folks. You'd think they would be. They've been in exile. And they just got out. You'd think they'd be filled with a lot of joy, but, but they're struggling. They're returning from exile, and, and they're, quite frankly, they're just complaining. Because they say, or the passage certainly implies, that they're saying, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded from my God. Here we have a good example of, of something I said two weeks ago, and it's simply this. No one talks to you more than you do. Let me say it again. No one talks to you more than you do. Here we have a crowd of people, the people of God, no less, that, who are talking to themselves, and they have become quite introspective. And they say, God, you've forgotten us. You, our way is, is hidden from you. This is something that, that, that they always wrestled with. And we'll see this as we move through these chapters. This feeling of forgottenness. They just can't seem to shake. We'll see it in chapter 49, verse 14, when they say, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. So when they look at their lives, and they look around, they look up, they think God's just gone. He's gone. He's just forgotten them. And that's not all. In addition to saying that, they then accuse God of having neglected them. That's what that little phrase about their being, about their right being disregarded means. In their minds, God had, had kind of snubbed them. We all know what that's like to be snubbed, right? Somebody sees you and they turn their head. <laughs> or they may look at you, but... They don't care enough to reach out and engage you in a conversation. We've, we've all experienced that. That's what they're experiencing. They feel like God's just, just he, he's just not interested. 
That's what they're accusing him of here. And can I tell you the worst part in all this? It'd be one thing if they said that once or twice. That'd be bad enough. But if I understand the passage correctly, it's not a one-time thing. From their perspective, at least, this is an ongoing thing, a continuous experience in their lives. Literally, it should read like this. God, you continually disregard us. You have continually forgotten us. This is where these people are. Now, you hear that and you think, how in the world could they say that? (laughs) I mean, in light of how good God's been to them, how in the world could they think and say things like that? You're not going to like what I'm about to say. But before we're too hard on them, we might need to be open to at least being a little bit like them. All, if not most of us, feel like there are times in our life when God just has not come through for us. And it just stings. And when that happens, we typically go a couple of ways. We either try to stuff our feelings and say, yeah, it stinks and it hurts, but I'm good. We put our head on the pillow and we know we're not. Or, instead of doing that, we try to take matters into our own hands. We try to fix things ourselves, in our own power, in our own strength. The only problem is we realize pretty quickly We can't fix anything (laughs) with regards to our hard time. It just won't go away. Or we get irritated. And we even might become bitter toward God. I think that's what's happening here. I think they're bitter. And I think we can be the same way. I can. Now, if I'm God in this situation, I know what I'm going to do. I'm done with them. I've been nice to them. I've tried to help them. They just won't listen. They're hard-headed. They're knuckleheads. I'm done with them. I'm going to start with somebody else. I'm going to pour myself into them. I'm going to invest in them and work with them. That's what I would do. But as Kevin prayed, somebody prayed, maybe it was Matthew, I'm so glad I'm not God that he is. Because that's not what he does at all. What I want you to see here is the way God demonstrates such concern for these people He loves to come to weary, weak, wounded, suffering people. He loves to do that. How do I know that? Because of what he does with them. He comes to them and he asks them some questions. Rhetorical questions. And in so doing, 
he's basically saying, why are you people talking like you're talking? Here at the start of verse 27, he literally says, literally, why do you say, O Jacob, why do you speak, O Israel? Once again, given the tense of this, the best translation is, why do you keep on saying and keep on speaking like you're saying and speaking? Why do you keep on doing that? And he refers to them as Jacob and as Israel. Why do I point that out? Let me tell you why. Brothers and sisters, that is covenantal language that's being used there. In other words, what God is saying to this crowd of people is, look, you're not just any people. You're my people. You're my covenant people. You're the people that I have, I have set my love upon. You are my possession. And you see, that was their fundamental problem. They had forgotten that. They had just forgotten it. And they needed to relearn it. And to, and to, and to think through that. I once heard a seminary professor say that if you want to see, and this is going to be hard, so bear with me. If you want to see the biggest bunch of liars in America, go to the local church on Sunday morning. And listen to them as they recite the Apostles' Creed. When they stand and say, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And he says, they don't live like they believe it. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says. What do you, or what should you, believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? The answer, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father in whom I trust, as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and furthermore, that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing also being a faithful father. These people have forgotten that. And so do we sometimes. It's what's God do. He doesn't take a baseball bat to them. He doesn't discard them. He just gently confronts them. He says, look, why, why are you people talking like you are? Why are you saying the things that you're saying? And in so doing, he exposes their fear and their unbelief and their lack of, quite frankly, trust. And do you see how he's doing it? With such tenderness and, and such concern. Do you see that? Isn't our God wonderful? <laughs> that he would be that concerned about us? 
to deal with us in that way? That's what he does for these people. That's what he does for us. Now, watch how he cares for them. Oh, this is beautiful. In verse 28, he says to them, more questions. (laughs) Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. What's Isaiah doing here? What's the Lord saying here? J.A. Mutir says this, the solution to Israel's problem, and if I might add our own, is to relearn what they already know and to open their ears to what they have been told. In other words, he wants them to behold God. He wants them to get their eyes off of themselves and get their eyes on God. What would they see and what would you and I see if we did that? Isaiah speaks of four things about God that he wants them as well as us to see. First of all, the Lord is everlasting. What does that mean? It means that God is eternal. He is outside of time. John Frame says it like this, time is itself a creation of God. That means that God's relation to time is very different from our own. For us, time often passes too quickly for us to accomplish our purposes, or it passes too slowly to maintain our interest. We often fail to accomplish something because we do not have enough time. But God does not depend on time like that. He always has enough time to accomplish his purposes and he never has too much. Now here's the question. How is that relevant for us? Let me tell you why and how. We need to understand that God does not get discombobulated when something hard or difficult comes into your life personally or to our lives corporately. He doesn't get frustrated or discombobulated or out of sorts about that. Why? Because if he is who he says he is, if he is everlasting, he, he sees things, as Tozer said, as, as having already lived out our tomorrows and all of our yesterdays. It doesn't catch him by surprise. He doesn't become frustrated by it. He's already seen it. He knows our yesterdays, our todays, and tomorrow. What does that mean then? Very simply, it means we can take a deep breath and relax. We can just relax. If he's not discombobulated, I don't know where I got that word, we don't need to be discombobulated, right? We can trust him. We can believe him. First thing he says about God is that he's everlasting. The second thing he says that the Lord would have us know about himself is that he is the creator of the ends of the earth. Once again, quoting John Frame, Frame says, and there's a quote, a human artist must have material. God does not. Why? 
All the created material in the world is created by him. It's as if a human artist made not only the statue, but also the clay and all the elements that make up the clay. End of quote. What's that mean for us? Let me tell you what it means. God is filthy rich. He is incredibly rich. Incredibly rich. He never has to ask anybody for anything. He never has to ask anybody for a loan even. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means. When you and I find ourselves in a hard place, God doesn't look at us in that hard place and situation and say, well, I really hate it, but I don't have any resources to help. He's not going to do that. Why? Because he is a God of unlimited resources. Unlimited resources. We sometimes tend to forget that. Third, Isaiah says the Lord is omnipotent. Our text says that he does not grow faint or grow weary. One commentator writes it, explains it like this, Israel had already passed through a long history, and Jehovah had provided over it and ruled within it. And he, being Jehovah, had not lost his power in consequence as to have now left his people to themselves. He does not grow faint as a man would. Once again, quoting Tozier, he writes, God has a plentitude of power, a potency that is absolute, and expands no energy that he must replenish. I get tired, I have to take a nap. God never has to take a nap. Last night while we slept, he was up all night. Were he to take his hand off of us, but for a millisecond, we would be but dust. He has that kind of power. Now, what difference should that mean and make in your life? As you confront hard things this year, as I confront them, as we confront them, and we will, and when you, we don't know if we can go on, we become so tired and weary that we just don't know that we can keep on. We need to know and to remember that God is not going to look into your life and into your situation and say, I'd like to help you, but I'm just too tired. God would never, that's not who he is. There never will be a moment when God has to stop leading and helping us due to a lack of strength. In fact, it's in those very moments, we're told in this text, that he promises to give us power and strength. Do you see it in 29? He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Isn't that glorious? Fourthly, and finally, the Lord's understanding is unsearchable. It's unsearchable. This, of course, is a reference to God's wisdom, and His wisdom is unsearchable. Or as some of your translations might even read, it is unfathomable. What does that mean for us? Let me tell you what it means. If God's wisdom is unsearchable, if you just can't get to the bottom of it, if it's unfathomable, 
He will always know what to do, when to do it, how he's going to do it, and find the ways and means to do it. Always. He didn't have to learn. (laughs) His wisdom is unfathomable. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I started reading through that over two weeks ago, even beyond that, I began to get a feel for what the Lord's doing here for Israel and for you and I as well. He's reminding them of what they had forgotten, that he's eternal, that he is outside of time, that he has unlimited resources, that he has infinite wisdom, that he knows what he wants to do. He has a plan and the power to pull it off. If that's true, and it is, here's the question. What are we so freaked out about? Really? (laughs) We have no reason to wonder and question his care. Do you see it here? Do you see his care? Do you see his concern for Israel? Do you see it for us? Finally, we note God's call. God's call. You say, look, I don't know if I can live like that. I've been weary so long, I don't know if I can do that. Well, guess what? You can't. By yourself. Where does the strength come from? Where does the strength come from to believe that he cares and is concerned? Even better than that, who does it come to? He answers that in verse 29. It comes to those who wait. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's those that wait on the Lord who get what is being promised here. Can I be honest with you about something? I got a weight problem. I've had it a while. I put on a lot of weight during COVID. But I'm not talking about that. I've got a W-A-I-T problem. And just to be clear, I'm not talking here about having to wait to be seen by a physician or somebody like that, or or I'm not talking about having to wait for Phyllis to finish whatever she's doing so we can do what we had planned to do, or for her to have to wait on me, or I'm not even talking about waiting for the traffic light to change. We have the slowest ones in Anderson. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm not talking about simple idleness. I don't think that's what Isaiah is talking about. Hear this. The waiting that Isaiah is speaking of and that we all seem to struggle with to some degree or another is the ability to absorb whatever hard place we find ourselves in and to refrain from introspection but instead engage in what Dave Pallison calls extraspection. Here's what he means by that. To somehow get outside of ourselves and recognize and remember and recite to ourselves that God is with us in the hard place, whatever it might be. And he can be trusted to see the big picture of things. 
Here's what one commentator said. This little expression implies two things. Complete dependence on God and a willingness to allow Him to decide the terms. To wait on Him is to admit that we have no other help, either in ourselves or in another. Therefore, we're helpless until He acts. By the same token, to wait on Him is to declare our confidence in His eventual action on our behalf. Thus, waiting is not merely killing time, but a life of confident expectation. Confident expectation. What happens when we do that, when we learn to wait? And we know that's a process, isn't it? We don't just click our fingers and get that. It's a process. We grow in that. But what happens when it does? When we, by God's grace, are able to get the big picture of things? Does God make us any promises? Yeah. He says here, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now let's be careful here. Please hear me. Isaiah is not saying that if you'll just start waiting on God, your life is just going to be perfect. That you'll get your best life now nonsense. Yeah, I said it. And I mean it. It's nonsense. The reality is, we may well have to continue to go through hardness and the fallout that that involves. But this passage says God will meet you in that and he will give you energy to navigate through that I love the order with which he does this he talks about wings running and walking if I were writing that I'd have changed that I'm processed away I think walk run wings walk run fly he didn't do it like that wonder why I listened to a guy that helped me with this. His name's John Farmer. And here's what he said. He said, Isaiah is very intentional about his word order. What he's saying is, if you wait on the Lord, sure, you'll, you'll fly. But if you're so broken and you're so weary that you can't even imagine the idea of flying, if you wait on the Lord, he'll help you walk. And if all you can do is crawl, he'll even help you do that. It's interesting that he says, even in verse 30, even youth faint and get weary. Even young men fall exhausted. Why does he say that? I think to remind us that he's not just talking to the senior adults that are coming back to Jerusalem. But he's talking to young people. To those who often feel a little bulletproof. He knows that even you get weary. But if you'll just come to me, I who am concerned, I who care, if you'll just hold still and let me help you, if you will wait on me. And is this not the promise that our Lord gave to his disciples? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In conclusion, 
We began this morning with the lyrics of a song written by Ann Steele, but I didn't give you all the lyrics. I want to save the very best for last, and I'll close with them. Here's what she said. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? Question. And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? Well, what's the answer, Anne? What conclusion did you come to? No. Still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Let us pray. Father, what a beautiful passage that you have given us. And what precious words these are to those who are weary and heavy laden. Grant, Lord, eyes for us all to see them, to be owned by them, to meditate on them and marinate in them all of our days, but particularly when we find ourselves in hard times. May you, Lord, be our strength. May you be our stay. In your name we do pray. Amen.